Now, we are trucking our way through the Gospel of Mark at the moment, second book in the New Testament, second of the four Gospels. And we're finally this morning hitting chapter four of Mark. Uh, let me just encourage you again to keep reading Mark as much as you can. We're not hitting every passage on Sundays in Mark, so the more that you're reading, uh, the more familiar you're going to become with this book. But we are gradually working our way through it. And uh, this morning in Mark chapter 4, we come to a passage which really is just a giant story. And everyone loves a good story, right? This is, and, and as you look, if, you, if you've read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, much at all, you know, you pick up pretty quickly that one of the main teaching methods that Jesus used was the telling of stories. He would tell stories all the time, and he would tell stories about all kinds of things. I went through and just tried to list the things that Jesus tells stories about. I came up with this. He, tell, he calls them parables uh, about uh, builders, farmers, weeds, mustard seeds, pearls, hidden treasure, fishing nets, sheep, servants, employees, vineyards, tenants, wedding banquets, virgins, bags of gold, goats, lamps, Samaritans, rich guys, fig trees, yeast, tax collectors, coins, managers, widows, Pharisees, and wages. That's all I got in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you look at that list, and it's just a real collection of, of everyday people, everyday things in the world that Jesus lived among in the first century. And because he did this so much, because he told these parables so much, there is a whole field of study that's now emerged about the parables. And scholars have spent forever debating, why did Jesus tell these stories? And what do they really mean? And what are the parables designed to do? And how should we go about interpreting them? And all this stuff. I thought, though, rather than having that type of theoretical discussion at the outset, I find the best way to get your head and your heart around these things is just to dive in. And it, it seems to be the nature of the parables Jesus told that they're best experienced and best understood from the inside. They actually take you climbing into them and figuring things out as you embody this narrative world of these parables. And so that's what we're going to do. Rather than having an upfront discussion about why parables, why this, why that, let's dive into Mark chapter 4 um, and just see this is one of the longest parables Jesus ever told. It's one of just two major parables in the Gospel of Mark, so it's pretty significant. So verse 1 of Mark chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now we'll stop there. There is a bit more to it. 
But uh, on the surface of it, pretty straightforward story. You've got a farmer here, no um, unusual thing in the first century. A farmer goes out, sows the seed, scatters the seed, and he really scatters it on every piece of available land that he's got, as farmers would have done in the first century. Whether it's good land or bad, they just scattered the stuff broadly. And it falls on four different types of surfaces. Some falls on the path where birds come and eat it up. It finds no soil at all, so it doesn't, doesn't produce anything. Some of it falls on shallow soil. The, uh, the plant grows up, but then the sun, the withering, scorching sun comes and the plant withers and shrivels up and dies. Some of the seed falls on soil where it grows up, but then thorns also grow up and choke the plant and it becomes unfruitful. And then you have the seed that falls on the good soil, the healthy soil, and the plant grows up and produces this massive crop, which we are told is 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. That's actually a ridiculously large harvest. I mean, a farmer would have been happy with 10% back in the first century. To get 30, 60, 100, that is nothing short of miraculous. So it's almost as if the good seed, the good crop, makes up for all this other wasted seed over here. Okay, so, so far we're tracking. All right, this is not too difficult. It's just a story about a farmer, and here he goes out sowing his seed. A question, of course, is, well, what do you do with this? How do you get to here? What's actually being said here? Most of the time with the parables, Jesus doesn't give us too much of a clue. Uh, we are left with maybe just a few words that he says at the end of the parable to wrap it up, and we've got to try and figure out our way through it. But this parable is unique in that Mark, after Jesus tells the story, Mark gives us this sort of behind-the-scenes look at Jesus with his disciples later on when they come up to him and say, hey, by the way, what on earth was that story about the farmer all about? Uh, and he says, well, let me tell you. And we get this behind-the-scenes look at the explanation of the parable. And so this is going to be very helpful. Because Mark really just tells two main parables in his gospel, he really wants you to get what's going on. So this is a great place to start. Now, skip over these middle verses in this passage and jump down to verse 13. We'll come back to the middle section in a, in a second, but let's just jump in here where Jesus actually gives the explanation of the parable. Let's see what's going on. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? In other words, this one's pretty foundational for understanding a lot of the other ones. The farmer sows the word. Now, that's helpful. It doesn't answer all our questions, though. You learn that the word, well, the seed represents the word. But we're not really told what the word is, and we're not even told who the farmer is. You could probably take a good guess, but we're not told. So this doesn't answer all our questions. This is where... A particular key to interpreting the parables becomes really important. Um, people sometimes say the reason Jesus told these stories, these parables, using everyday objects, is because they had currency in the first century. It's because people understood vineyards and farmers and sheep and tax collectors and these sorts of things. And so if Jesus had been around today, he might have told stories about, I don't know, IT specialists or Church Road Chardonnay. Or, uh, there was a dispute, the, the parable of the wicked rock and roll band or something, you know. Uh, maybe, and that's possible because we would have understood them better, but there is another dimension to this whereby Jesus didn't just choose images and symbols and objects because they meant something too in the everyday world of these people. He often chose images that had Old Testament significance. He often chose images that already had currency in the story of Israel, in the story of God's dealings with the Jewish people, 
in the Old Testament scriptures. He didn't just tell parables about sheep, for example, and vineyards, or the sowing of seeds because, well, everybody understood them. No, those things actually had significance. And one of the things you can do if you're doing your own Bible study on the parables is just do a quick word search on some key images, like this would be seed and sowing. See what crops up in the Old Testament. See what's said and how those sorts of images are used, and it may just start to form a bit of a backdrop to how Jesus is going about telling the story. There is one passage in particular in the Old Testament which really does form quite a backdrop to what's going on with the parable of the sower. It's Isaiah 55. So turn back there for a second. Now just a quick review. We've talked a couple of times in this series how in the Gospel of Mark there's some background stories that are going on from Israel's history. There's the story of the Exodus, God leading his people out of captivity in Egypt. And there's the story of the exile and the return from exile, the story of God leading his people out of captivity in Babylon. And these stories really did form a foundation for Mark as he tells the story of Jesus. He talks about it subtly as a new exodus and as a new, real returning from exile. Now this passage in Isaiah was written of a time when people really were in captivity in a foreign land in Babylon. They were slaves outside of Israel. They'd been exiled by the uh, Babylonian empire and army and now faced 70 years in captivity. And during that time, these promises of Isaiah, of what God would do when he one day came to rescue and restore and end the exile and bring his people home, they kept alive the promises and the hopes and ambitions of a whole nation. This is one such promise in Isaiah 55, verse 10. See if, by the way, as I read this, you can draw the parallels to the parable of the sower. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower, does that sound familiar? And bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And here is the purpose. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. It's a picture of the return from exile. And it's a picture of how that's going to happen. God's going to send forth his word, which is not just God speaking, but in the Old Testament and through the scriptures, when God speaks, stuff happens. Let there be light. Remember? Stuff happens when God speaks. And what's going to happen when God's word goes forth? It will be like the rain falling from heaven. It's going to be like seed for the sower. And it's a picture of God replanting his people in their land, re-sowing Israel in a state of peace and safety and prosperity. It's this horticultural analogy. I'm going to re-sow, I'm going to replant you in good soil where you will, there will be joy and there'll be peace, no longer captivity, no longer exile. The word of God will go forth and the result will be Israel re-sowing in her land, peace, prosperity, harmony, joy, and restoration. All of these things are going to happen. It's the national promise of Israel. Now, Take all that with you back to Mark. What do you think Jesus' hearers might have thought when he comes along and starts talking about a farmer who goes out sowing seed? The seed represents the word now being sown, now going forth. People's minds would very quickly have gone back 
to these promises of Isaiah. People's minds would very quickly have gone back to this promise of God sending forth his word and re-sowing his people. And the message underneath it all is the return from exile is happening. It's coming true. God is finally acting. The day of the Lord is finally here, and God's people are finally going to be re-sown in a new state of peace and prosperity and harmony. But it's not going to happen as you expected it. It's not going to come with a blaze of glory. It's not going to come with the parting of the heavens. It's not going to come with the Mount of Olives literally being split in two and these kinds of things which are what people expected. Instead, it's coming through this manual laborer from the equivalent of Huntley. You know, this guy who shows up, called Jesus, and starts doing things and saying things. The kingdom is coming quietly. The kingdom is coming subtly. The kingdom is coming gently. Not everything Jesus did was gentle and subtle and quiet, but it is at this stage. And God is saying that my word is going forth, but it's not what you thought. The kingdom is coming. The return from exile is here. I am sowing the seed. I am re-sowing and replanting my people. But it's not the way you thought it was going to happen. And because of that, there are different responses to this word that's now being spoken, this word Jesus Christ that's now going forth. And these are the responses that we see in the rest of this passage, these responses that Israel had to the coming of Jesus. The farmer sows the word, verse 15, some people are like seeds sown along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. That sounds a lot like the Jewish leaders we met last week. These people who came, passed very early judgment on Jesus, decided who he was, he's demon-possessed, and wrote him off. They had nothing more to do with him. These are these people rejecting Jesus and holding him at arm's length. Then there's a second group. Others were like seeds sown on the rocky places. They, what they hear the word, they at once receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that might be the situation of Jesus' own family. Jesus' own flesh and blood family, they were sympathetic early on, but by the time you get to Mark 3 last week, they've decided that Jesus is out of his mind. They've decided he's insane, and they haven't been able to shift their own thinking enough to actually embrace the work their own flesh and blood son is doing. There's another group, still others, like the seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. We're going to meet a character in a few chapters' time who we know is the rich young ruler. This sounds a lot like him, a guy who was choked by his own wealth and ambition and unable to follow Jesus fully, even though he had the right heart desire. And finally, there are those who are sown on good soil, who hear the word and accept it and produce a great crop. And this, of course, refers to Jesus' followers, those who accepted him, those who embraced him, those who were willing to have their paradigm shifted and embrace what he was doing. Now, this is a little bit of a different way of thinking about this parable because usually, and this is why you're scratching your heads now, is because usually we want to see ourselves in the parable. Usually we're very quick with the parables to say, well, where's me? Where am I? Who am I? Which one am I? Now, that's a logical question, but it's not the first question that we should ask because first and foremost, this isn't a story about you. First and foremost, this isn't a story about me and it's not a story about us. It's a story about Jesus and it's a story about Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's story. 
You have to realize that when you come to the parables. Far and away, most of them have a foundational layer of meaning which concerns Jesus and God's dealings with his people Israel. Yes, it does have meaning for us, but if you jump to that and that's all you care about, you really do an injustice to the text and you really do an injustice to the depth of what's actually being said in the parable. So you have to appreciate that in the first instance, this is God sowing his word for his people. Jesus is now that word coming forth and is responded to various ways by Israel who are sometimes unable to handle what God is actually doing in building his kingdom. Now, as you grasp hold of that, it starts to clear up this bit in the middle, which has perplexed people for a long time. In verse 10, when Jesus is alone, the 12, 12 disciples and others around him ask him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. This can all sound a bit harsh if you're not careful. It sounds like God's got a special little secret. And he's going to reveal it to you over here, whisper it in your ear, but then you're not going to find out. Sorry. So basically, it's, all, it's curtains for you, and you people are okay. It's this somehow arbitrary decision of God. But as you look a little bit closer, this word secret, it puts us wrong a bit, because it has those kinds of connotations. And yet, it's, it's, the Greek word is mysterion, from where we get our word mystery. And as you look through the New Testament, it doesn't mean something that's just arbitrarily hidden from you and given to you. What it means is something that was once hidden for a long period of time, but is now being revealed in a new and surprising way. This is why Paul in Ephesians 3 can talk about being a minister of the gospel and, and this mystery of the gospel which was hidden for ages but is now being made known. It's the plan and purpose of God that was concealed through the Old Testament. The prophets searched for it but couldn't quite understand what was going on. And now it's coming true, but in a way that nobody saw coming. Nobody thought the kingdom was going to come like this. Nobody thought God's word was going to look like this manual laborer from Nazareth. No one expected this, but this is the mystery of the gospel. This is the secret of the kingdom of heaven, that this is how God's acting. This is how the kingdom's being built. This is how the seed is being sown. Not in a blaze of glory, not according to your expectations, but in this new and surprising way. And that is going to take a paradigm shift for people to get their heads around. There are going to be some people that simply can't handle it. They're going to be like Tom Cruise, man. They can't handle the truth because it is just too much. And, and it's just, too, they've got God in this box here. Expect, this is how God will and won't act. This is what he will and won't do. I've read Isaiah. I know how it's going to be. Don't tell me that it's going to be like this. Some people cannot have their paradigm shaken, and so they're going to see Jesus, and they're going to reject him, and they're not going to bear a crop. They're not going to be part of the great harvest. To them, the parables are just like puzzles. And they actually have this self-reinforcing effect where all they do is harden people's hearts. If they're not willing to accept what God is doing, if they're not willing to open themselves up, if they're not willing to have their little box shaken a bit, all the parables are going to do is push them further away and reinforce their unbelief. They become a bit like unbelieving Israel that Isaiah talked about, who are ever hearing, never perceiving, ever seeing, never understanding, because their hearts are calloused and they're not drawn in. But for those who are willing to be open 
for those who are able to hear these stories and think, man, I never thought it was going to happen like this. Who would have guessed that this is how God's plan would unfold? But I'm intrigued, I'm curious, and I want to know more. For people with enough openness of heart to allow themselves to be drawn in, the parables have a magnetic pull. And they pull them in and help people understand themselves within this new world that Jesus is creating. But this is the challenge for us at the outset, is to have enough openness to allow our little box to be shaken enough, to allow our familiarity and our paradigms of what God will and won't do to be rocked enough that we're open in spirit enough to be drawn into this world and see if we can find ourselves within it. It takes an open heart even to engage with what Jesus is saying and doing through the parables. And if we're willing to do that, and hopefully we are today, then we can dive in and start to find our own place in this story. I know it's taken us a while to get here, but that's because I wanted to show you that it's not first about us. It's first about Jesus. And it's first about his dealings with God's people Israel. It becomes about us. As we stand in a long line of those who have had to answer this question, what are we going to do with Jesus? How are we going to respond to him coming to us, to him standing before us, to God speaking this word to us? And so we can then see ourselves in these different responses as well. God the farmer has sown the word Jesus and some people are going to be like those who the seed falls on the path and the birds come and eat it and take it away. And very simply, this is those who for whatever reason and by whatever means reject the grace, the forgiveness, the transforming power that Jesus offers them. Not just people that declare themselves to be atheists and, and, and crusade and antagonize Christianity. Often these are people who are so trapped by religion that they miss the relationship that God is actually offering them. I used to work with a woman who believed that she was right before God because she was an Anglican, by which she meant just an affiliation with the Anglican church. I think she'd become a member at some point in time. She didn't go. She didn't participate at all, but, but she was an Anglican. I think her parents were Anglican, and that was enough for her. That was good. And friends, that's like seed on the path. That's someone that, that, that's just bound by the trappings of religion to a point that they are not embracing what Jesus is actually offering. They are keeping him out, and they are, to a, in a sense, rejecting that relationship that he offers them. And there is a whole category of people that live that way. And there is a second group of people. The seed falls on the shallow soil. These people grow up quickly, and then the sun withers, and they die. And this is a story, particularly young people, you can relate to this. It's the story of, of the young guy, the young woman who goes along to an Easter camp or, or parachute or goes near as a Christian speaker or whatever. And there is this rush of emotion and that you come forward and you make a commitment, you pray a prayer, you make a decision in this rush of, of hype. And for a while, things are fantastic. And, and, and people, are these, this person's just fired up about their new faith. You know, you've seen these people. They want to tell every single person they meet about Jesus. They want to read their Bible ten times over. They sign up for every single ministry in the church. They're just full on, full on, full on. It's like this initial fire. And then after a while, they realize that their family isn't quite so happy about their decision as they are. And they realize that some of their friends at school or uni are pursuing lives in a different direction today 
and they're starting to put strain on those friendships and because those people are pulling them back into patterns of behavior and habits that they know are not now squaring with the way of Jesus. And they're realizing slowly that being a Christian doesn't immunize you from the hard knocks of life. And over time, their hearts start to grow cold and inertia kicks in and they start drifting away. And Jesus says the reason these people drift away is because they have no root. It's such a fallacy in Christian circles. We play this little game where we think the whole goal is to get people over some invisible line of faith. And, and then once we've made converts, it's like, we can leave you there, you're fine, good, on to the next one. Clip the ticket for heaven, you're good, now how about you? And this is just a tragedy. It is a lie I'm convinced of the devil because it actually destroys people. It is at that point of commitment and decision that people are at their most volatile where people desperately need others to come around them and help push their roots down deep into the soil of faith to embed them in Christian community where they're going to have the support and the prayer and even the accountability of other more mature brothers and sisters in Christ. It's at that point where we can pray for them, where we can help introduce them to some spiritual disciplines that will help them grow in their relationship with Christ, where we can help them through the process of starting to renew their minds because our minds aren't automatically reprogrammed when you give your heart to Christ. It is a process. We need to disciple people. We need to work with people and help develop deep roots. There are too many Christians who have an initial fire and then the scorching sun of real life hits and they wither and die because they didn't have enough roots. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you know of people in this category and they're nowhere for the Lord this morning because they just didn't survive. Their roots just weren't deep enough. And there's a third category of people Though the seed that's sown among the thorns, the thorns grow up and they choke this uh, plant. And I love the way Jesus describes it, just this little phrase here, which is so uh, cutting in a way. Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, verse 18, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. That doesn't sound like us at all, does it? That's got nothing to say to 21st century society at all, does it? That, this is a, that is an incredible commentary on a consumer society. I mean, considering this is written in the first century, I mean, some things change in 2,000 years, right? Some things do not. That's unbelievable. And, you, I mean, you'd have to say that, at least in the Western world, if there is one story, if there is one narrative, meta-narrative, that sort of hangs everybody together that we all subscribe to in the West, it's probably the myth of consumerism. It's probably the story of consumerism that's the dominant narrative in Western countries. And sadly, while Christians should be able to critique that narrative with the truth of Scripture and replace it with the biblical story, too often we run headlong into it and we embody that narrative ourselves. And we pursue this myth of more, this narrative that through accumulation of wealth and material assets, we are going to achieve prosperity, peace and happiness. And I mean, we'd all say, no, 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 we, we don't believe that. But our lifestyles betray us sometimes, don't they? Honestly, that we have, abs we have subscribed to that narrative to a degree instead of the biblical story. And that's not to say that, you know, getting the, the next phone upgrade is wrong or getting the next whatever uh, is wrong. It's an issue of the heart. It's what is it that has our attention. It's what is it that, has, that, that becomes our treasure. What is it that consumes our time and energy and focus? What are we giving ourselves to? What are we prioritizing? Because those things, the desire for more things, the deceitfulness of wealth, they have a choking effect on our faith. And they suffocate us.
and they can drag us away if we are not very, very careful from that undivided heart for the Lord and our willingness just to be sold out for his purposes and have Christ formed in our lives. We just need to be careful with this stuff. And, and perhaps we can even think of people that have been dragged along that path because their faith has been choked. Jesus doesn't say that plant's going to die. He just says it's going to be unfruitful. And there's too many Christians that may be genuine believers, but they've become unfruitful because they are consumed by the worries and the troubles and the, the consumer material culture that we are surrounded in and need to reclaim that single-minded devotion to Christ and his transforming work of grace in their lives. And then there's this final group of people the goal of the whole thing, the, 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 the seed that falls on the fertile soil, the good soil, they hear the word, they accept it, and they produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. And it's easy, I think, with the biblical language of bearing fruit and bearing a crop. Our minds, do you find this, very quickly go to behavior? We picture very moral people, righteous people, that act well and subscribe to some moral code. That's a real thin description of what bearing fruit bearing a crop actually looks like. This is the whole transformation of a person's being by the grace of God. It's allowing grace to take a hold so strongly in our lives and have it permeate out to every area of our lives that eventually behavior is affected, but only because we are so captivated by the love of Christ. <laughs> 